I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, everyone. This is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. I've been needing a quick getaway with my family, and the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the perfect vehicle to take us there. It has standard third-row seating, so I'm able to pack my entire family, plus pets, in the car while also having enough room for our camping essentials. Available H-Track all-wheel drive will get us through any dirt trails, and available dual wireless charging pads will ensure we never have to worry about getting stuck with a dead phone in the middle of nowhere. Visit HyundaiUSA.com. Or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hi, I'm Ethan Nadelman, and this is Psychoactive, a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. Psychoactive is the show where we talk about all things drugs— but any views expressed here do not represent those of iHeartMedia, Protozoa Pictures, or their executives and employees. Indeed, as an inveterate contrarian, I can tell you they may not even represent my own. And nothing contained in this show should be used as medical advice or encouragement to use any type of drugs. Hello, psychoactive listeners. Back last year, I asked a dear friend of mine who I think is one of the smartest thinkers and writers and advisors about drugs to join me uh, on Psychoactive to answer questions from you, the audience. And a bunch of you left, you know, some great questions. So we're going to do that again. My friend's name is Dr. Julie Holland, and she is a psychiatrist and a psychopharmacologist. She has been a well-known commentator on national TV. She um, is an advisor to psychedelics companies. She has edited or authored five books. Her first book was called Weekends at Bellevue, Nine Years on the Night Shift at the Psych ER. And her last two books, one was called Moody Bitches. And the next one, the most recent, Good Chemistry, The Science of Connection from Soul to Psychedelics. So, Julie, thank you so much for joining me again as a sort of co-host and question answerer on Psychoactive. 
I'm very happy to be here, Ethan. Anytime that I can help you educate the populace, you know, that's what I love to do. Okay. Well, actually, let's just start. The last two books, just tell me, first of all, with Moody Bitches, I mean, it's got a great title. What was that book about? It is really about how women are sort of over-pathologized, over-diagnosed, and over-medicated in today's sort of psychiatric ecosystem, that women uh, can have sort of a natural emotionality to them, which we can make good use of, and we don't need to pathologize it. So that's mostly what Moody Bitches was. And it was also just giving a lot of practical information to women about hormones, about psychiatric medicine, about inflammation, which I care deeply about. Mm-hmm. A- and the subtitle of Moody Bitches is the truth about the drugs you're taking, the sleep you're missing, the sex you're not having, and what's really making you crazy. And what is really making people crazy, what I wrote about toward the end of Moody Bitches was about how disconnected we are, disconnected from ourselves, from nature, from each other. And this was all way before COVID. So the book after Moody Bitches really continued with this idea of connection versus disconnection. That's what good chemistry is all about. It's all about how if we are feeling safe and connected, our natural chemistry will make us feel good. And the reason why so many of us feel terrible and are taking other drugs or medications is that we aren't really enjoying that connection. That's really our birthright and that we're sort of wired for. I'm just curious because it's been on my mind recently. I don't even know if this is drug related. But when you say about inflammation, that that was something you were very curious about and thought had a lot to say, what what was the key elements of what you wanted to share with people well, about that? The key elements is that inflammation underlies almost any disease process you can think of. If you don't have inflammation, you won't have diabetes. If you don't have inflammation, you won't have arthritis, you won't have Alzheimer's, you won't have cancer. So it is in the setting of inflammation that a lot of other really bad things happen to your body. And it's also true with your brain. When your body has any kind of inflammation, your brain suffers. And there are times where the brain has inflammation. And then you're going to get into issues uh, like anxiety or depression or insomnia. So uh, Moody Bitches talks a lot about how to have sort of an anti-inflammatory lifestyle and good chemistry does as well. So anti-inflammatory, you know, most of us know an anti-inflammatory diet doesn't have flour and sugar. It's just got like whole foods that are sort of recognizable that grow outside in the sunshine. Anti-inflammatory activities would be things like yoga or meditation or mindfulness. And then you have anti-inflammatory medicines, right? We all know about Aleve and Advil and these kind of name brand anti-inflammatories, but many of us forget that cannabis and CBD are potent in anti-inflammatories as are some psychedelics. They are also anti-inflammatory. So part of a healthy anti-inflammatory lifestyle, besides eating healthy food and staying as relaxed as you can be, is the sort of judicious addition of some drugs, if you're comfortable with them, using things like cannabis or CBD or psychedelics, keeping in mind that they have anti-inflammatory effects and therefore they're actually good for your body. You know, I'm curious. I've been thinking about doing an episode on sugar as a drug. Mm -hmm. And when it comes to sugar and inflammation, I mean, is it generally a good idea that significantly reducing sugar intake can can make some real difference there? Absolutely. I mean, what I wrote about in Moody Bitches was really just eat the colored foods, don't eat the white foods. As much as they taste good, the bread and dairy products, they're really not that great for you. Mm -hmm. Flour and sugar, white flour, white sugar for sure are pro-inflammatory. 
and sugar is its own little uh, has got all kinds of issues. It, it is true that it it really does act as a drug in the brain, and you can get uh, sort of a tolerant to it or have withdrawal if you're not having it. It does wreak havoc on your pancreas and your insulin levels. Mm-hmm. What's good to remember is that things like cannabis and CBD help to balance out your blood sugar levels. And you mentioned the psychedelics could be helpful with inflammation as well. So psychedelics, yeah. Well, I mean, the truth is the most anti-inflammatory psychedelic is something called DOI, which is not commonly mentioned when we think about psychedelics and for good reason. It actually has an incredibly long half-life. So- it's just not a practical thing to take. So, you know, let's go to the questions. And so we asked listeners to call in to a phone number. The phone number is 833-PSYCHO-0 or, or, or 833-779-2460 and just leave a question. And I'm hoping that Julie will be willing to do this again with me sometime later this year, early next, and, uh, and we'll do this again. So let's go to the first question from our listeners. Hi there. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about substances and mental health and how that works differently for different people. I work in a psychiatric um, hospital and obviously I see a lot of negative interactions with regards to certain substances and certain mental health diagnoses. So I'm just wondering if you can expand a little bit on how this works differently for different people and why and maybe some research that might be coming down that um, speaks to these areas. I myself suffer from mental health um, conditions like anxiety and depression and I find substances are very helpful in certain settings or contexts but obviously I see a lot of negative impacts. So I'm just wondering if you can um, elaborate or explain the science behind behind some of that and maybe some of the policy that might inform that. Yeah, thanks. So where would you like to jump in on that one? I'll start with what I know. For nine years, every Saturday night and Sunday night, I was the doctor in charge of the psychiatric emergency room at Bellevue Hospital. And I was in charge of like a 15 to 16 hour overnight shift. And far and away, the substances that wreak the most havoc in in the psychiatric patients that I saw in Bellevue, number one, alcohol, no question, and number two, cocaine. So these are also drugs. (laughs) They can be detrimental. You know, the thing that people always kind of forget about alcohol is that it really is a depressant. And if you're using a depressant regularly, you're going to get depressed and stay depressed. And a lot of the people that I saw who had problems with alcohol were significantly depressed, were suicidal. And, you know, part of the problem is that once you get to the point of being sort of dysfunctional and addicted, you're also uh, not able to work or support yourself. You're not able to keep up your relationships and your connections. So you become more disconnected. Maybe you end up on the street or homeless and you have no money. And all of those things are obviously going to make you more miserable, more suicidal. But far and away, alcohol was the biggest sort of problematic drug that I saw in all my work in psychiatry. And then with cocaine, and it was really in particular crack cocaine, that we had people who would come in off of binges where they'd been smoking crack for days, and they were very paranoid, or they were psychotic, or they were crashing from their cocaine binge, and they were terribly depressed. So from a practical point of view, these are the two drugs that I think are most sort of problematic for mental health maintenance. But on the flip side of that, what we know or what we're learning now is that there are some drugs that people might consider them to be drugs of abuse, but they can actually be helpful 
for people who have psychiatric diagnoses. The most sort of advanced research I can think of now is MDMA-assisted therapy for the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. So most of you, I imagine, know that MDMA uh, is also known as, as ecstasy or molly. It's methylene dioxy, methamphetamine. It is typically used, certainly in research context, it is used alongside of psychotherapy to make the therapy go deeper and be more efficient and more effective. So we're seeing MDMA therapy as a potential treatment for psychiatric diagnoses like post-traumatic stress disorder, possibly also for anorexia, possibly also for the kind of existential angst and anxiety that comes with a terminal diagnosis. Say you just found out that you have cancer and you're trying to sort of wrap your head around not existing anymore. So there are ongoing clinical studies looking at using MDMA to treat psychiatric diagnoses. And there's also ongoing clinical studies looking at psilocybin, the active ingredient in quote magic mushrooms to treat some psychiatric disorders. So there's sort of a wide range of, of an interaction between substances and mental health. You know, one of the things I always like to remind people is when you're looking at the MDMA research or the psilocybin research, keep in mind that anybody with a history of psychosis, anybody who carries the diagnosis of schizophrenia or has a history of being psychotic, and even people who have a first degree relative who has a history of being psychotic, like say you have a sister with schizophrenia or a father who gets psychotic when he's manic, you're not going to be allowed into these studies. We just don't know yet how, what the interaction of psychedelics is going to be with people who've got sort of chronic persistent mental illness. Mm -hmm. So I think it's safer to talk about anxiety and depression, but when we start talking about bipolar disorder or schizoaffective or schizophrenia, some of the really sort of heavy-duty psychiatric diagnoses, it is probably safer to not partake while we figure out what the effects are going to be. Bellevue's a New York City hospital, which meant you're probably seeing a lot more crack cocaine, you know, back in the 90s, early 2000s. But I mean, could the same thing yeah. likely be said about methamphetamine and people who were smoking or injecting it yeah, in you know, other parts of the yes. country? That's really important to mention because, you know, there's some sort of unwritten law that like east of the Mississippi, you're going to see more cocaine and west of the Mississippi, you're going to see more methamphetamine. We never really had a huge methamphetamine problem in New York City, certainly when I was at Bellevue, which was like mid 90s to mid 2000s. There wasn't a lot of methamphetamine, but we would occasionally see somebody, again, who was coming off off of a run or a binge where they've been using methamphetamine for several days where they would be psychotic or paranoid or agitated. And keep in mind that part of that agitation and psychosis just comes from sleep deprivation. You keep somebody awake for two or three nights, even without drugs, you're going to have psychiatric symptoms in that person. So it's mm -hmm. just that much worse if you're also giving a dopamine agonist. But you definitely can get psychotic from methamphetamine use. And typically the psychosis takes longer to clear, to go away, than it does from cocaine. And that may just be because the, the half-life of methamphetamine is significantly longer than the half-life for cocaine. The mm -hmm. only other form of methamphetamine that I've heard about on and off over the years was something that people called ICE which is basically like the crack version of meth, where it's like a smokable methamphetamine. Obviously, people can smoke methamphetamine, they can snort it, they can inject it. Um, so I don't know about it like a particularly super strong meth, but I honestly think the one we have is sort of is strong enough. 
um, it, it can really wreak havoc um, on your reality testing, not quite mm-hmm. knowing what's real and what's not. What about for people who are borderline or schizophrenic? Well, we normally tend to think stay away from psychedelics. Um, is that generally the rule? But are there also cases where it actually can be therapeutic? Any evidence? On yeah. This? Well, I mean, the first the first answer, the first layer of the answer is we don't have all the data yet. Then the the second layer is that if you have a, a chronic, persistent mental illness or a very serious diagnosis like bipolar or schizoaffective or schizophrenia, it is probably safer to not engage with these drugs. That being said, there is definitely research going on. I mean, I'm particularly interested in whether MDMA may be able to help the negative symptoms of schizophrenia. There was a researcher, Bert Angrist, many decades ago, who actually gave methamphetamine to people with schizophrenia who had negative symptoms. So I know when people think of schizophrenia, they think of somebody hearing voices or being paranoid or being disorganized. Those things are all true, but those are the positive symptoms. The negative symptoms, which are harder to treat with medication and more sort of pervasive, is things like not wanting to do anything, not having a lot of motivation, not thinking a lot, not speaking a lot. You know, you're just kind of like a bump on a log. And it may be that giving MDMA-assisted therapy can get people a little bit more motivated, a little bit more engaged, and also potentially to have more of a therapeutic alliance with their therapist. So there are some very small pilot studies in early stages of planning to look at whether MDMA might be helpful in negative symptoms and schizophrenia. In terms Mm -hmm. of bipolar, I just think people are kind of holding off, but I know there's one person who feels like ayahuasca might be helpful in bipolar, but I, I know of multiple case studies and people who have gotten destabilized from ayahuasca. So I think that if you're bipolar and if you have any history of getting manic, you really want to be very, very careful and probably err on not taking these medicines because they are potentially destabilizing. I mean, even cannabis can be destabilizing in some of these patient populations. Mm-hmm. Julie, you know, there was this article in late May in the New York Times about new approaches emerging in terms of mental illness and about patients and patient advocates saying, you know, rather than trying to suppress the voices we're hearing, maybe it's more about learning to live with these voices. I don't know, did you see that yeah, article? Yeah, I saw that. I saw that article. And this this was a really brave, unusual article that they're talking about that there are groups of people who carry a diagnosis of schizophrenia, who don't want to take the medications and want to find other ways to manage their symptoms. So the big risk, when you hear voices, it really comes down to who you think is speaking to and whether you're going to do what they say or not. And, you know, the joke I sort of make is like, you know, usually do what your mother tells you, right? So mm-hmm. if it's your mother's voice and she's saying, you know, kill someone, then that that's really a much more dangerous situation than like, let's say you think it's the voice of the devil, but you know, you're a good Christian or something, and then you're not going to be following the voices. So this idea of like a delusional framework within like, what is the context of these voices? How do you perceive the voices? I had a patient who bit off his fingertips because he thought that it was the voice of Buddha telling him to prove his worth as a disciple to Buddha. And he felt that this was a way to prove his worth as a disciple. He clearly believed that the voice was the voice of Buddha. So who who you think is speaking to you has a lot to do with how you're going to behave. 
it's a complicated sort of dangerous area to talk about somebody who's psychotic who doesn't want to take medicine. But the bottom line is that, you know, this is America and we have a lot of freedoms here. We have a lot of civil liberties here. And I don't think people should be medicated against their will under any circumstances. But the truth is at Bellevue, there was a certain amount of people getting medicated against their will where they were dangerous to themselves or they were dangerous to other peoples. And at least temporarily, we had to sedate them just to sort of defuse the situation and make things safer. So mm -hmm. I was really intrigued by that article. I like that there are places, you know, there are places in Western Massachusetts that if you have schizophrenia and you don't want to take medication, that maybe you can go and they will help you learn how to live with your voices or how to manage your symptoms without meds. It's nice to have all of these options. Well, it made me think also just about, you know, MDMA-assisted psychotherapy because, you know, a big part of MDMA is the ability to listen in ways that one does not normally listen to a, a lover or partner or friend, whatever it might be. And I was wondering, you know, to imagine MDMA with people in schizophrenia, has anybody ever tried that or would one never get permission so, to do such a study? So I edited a book about MDMA called Ecstasy, The Complete Guide back in 2001. I have a chapter on using MDMA in psychiatry and a chapter on using MDMA in the treatment of schizophrenia. And in that chapter, I told the story of, I think it was like four sort of case studies, you know, people who'd gotten in touch with me, people who had a diagnosis of schizophrenia, who had had MDMA, who had a, a respite from their symptoms. Their voices got quieter, their paranoia came down. They felt that sort of heart opening toward their family or toward their caregivers. So I, I have been saying, you know, for 30 years, like this is something we should look at. I mean, I also talk about the very first time I ever took MDMA, my head was so quiet. It's not that I hear voices, but, you know, there is a little bit of chitter, 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 you know, there's just like a little inner, inner monologue going on. And when the MDMA came on, I was like luxuriating and how quiet my head was. And one of the first things that I thought of was, wouldn't this be lovely for somebody who's hearing voices to just have that quiet? Like, even if it didn't do anything else, even if it just gave you quiet for an hour or two, that would be a lovely gift to give someone. Mm -hmm. So these studies haven't been done. There is a, a schizophrenia researcher named Stephen Martyr at UCLA, I believe, who is starting to look at this. And there's another schizophrenia researcher named John Kane on Long Island. And they are going to start to look at whether MDMA might be helpful. But the first group of patients, and my recommendation was find people who have a lot of negative symptoms because I don't think you're going to make them worse. Mm -hmm. But we just That's don't fair. know. I, I guess the only thing I would maybe add, you know, she asked about drug policy, how, how drug policy is reflected in this intersection between mental health and substance abuse. And I would say that we are seeing, first of all, uh, many sort of municipalities and cities around the United States of America are decriminalizing possession of some psychedelics, or at least deprioritizing any sort of uh, persecution from a legal yeah. perspective. But then you have Oregon, which is actually really trying to, to formulate a new way of thinking about psilocybin mushrooms as being therapeutic. And Oregon is starting to look at using, using psilocybin therapeutically in various patient populations, not just post-traumatic stress disorder. So I think that is a real example of a big change in our drug policies going from, yeah, don't take this, it's dangerous, it's going to give you psychiatric symptoms, to you may be able to use this to ease some of your psychiatric symptoms.
You know, it's very interesting in Oregon now because I think there's a very serious, mature effort to try to make sure the rollout of this Oregon psilocybin, you know, medical psilocybin initiative, you know, get, kind of rolls out effectively and carefully. And I think there are plans underway to do similar sorts of initiatives in other states. Yeah. yeah. Well, I will tell you that I, I was uh, contacted by some policymakers in Washington state who were really watching what Oregon was doing and thought that they would go next. We'll be talking more after we hear this ad. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Okay, let's go to question number two. Hey, I am a gay man in New York, and I've been noticing a growing trend in the gay community here around the prevalence of the drug GHB. Um, I've always known the combination of GHB and alcohol can be deadly, and I guess what I'm now seeing is men swearing off alcohol entirely and instead taking GHB regularly, almost with the same frequency as just regular social drinking. Many of these guys are even citing their physical health and their ability to stay in shape and avoid hangovers as the motivation. I guess I was wondering if you could talk to the overall 
health and safety around GHB. I mean, obviously, alcohol is unhealthy for a whole host of reasons, but is GHB significantly better? What can you tell us about GHB and its you know, safety margins, safety levels, and risks? Well, first of all, it is kind of funny how things come around. It, it was very big in the 90s, and then it somehow sort of fell off the map, and now it's coming back around. So Look, in terms of safety, unfortunately, and, you know, this is often the case that because of our drug policy, because of our nation's drug policy, these things end up less safe and more dangerous. The The biggest issue with GHB is that you don't always know what you've got, right? It's a clear, colorless liquid. I mean, typically, it's a powder that is dissolved into water. How much powder and how much water is going to decide how strong that is? So, if you haven't made this batch yourself, you're really relying on somebody else to figure out how many grams is in how many milliliters. And that's going to have everything to do with how potent it is and what your effect is. But it's true that you shouldn't mix GHB with alcohol. And it may even be true that if you know exactly what your dose is, that it is sort of harm reduction to use GHB instead of alcohol. However, the harm comes from not knowing what your dosage is you know, it's not legal to buy. So you have to kind of go to the to the black market or at least a gray market when you're purchasing these things. So you just Although, Julie, you don't I know think what you GHB, have. GHB, back in the 90s, I think it was you legal. Could order and then it. it was more use. And I think DEA or whoever, yes. you know, then scheduled it in 2001 or so, right? So there was a time when, when you could buy it online and it, it went by all sorts of names. It was like a computer keyboard cleaner. That was one of the ways, like clean your keyboard with this special cleanser. Um, so there were ways to buy it online. So because it's clear and colorless, someone can put it in your drink and you're not going to know it. So in that way, it could be dangerous. But like, let's say you knew exactly how much you were taking. I still sort of take issue with this idea of regular use. There's something called GBL, which uh, I know that some bodybuilders were using GBL, you know, scoops of GBL in, in sort of a smoothie as a way to build muscle. And I did once see a guy at Bellevue who abruptly stopped using GBL and was completely delirious and basically psychotic because he was in withdrawal. So I believe that it's safe for me to say that if somebody is using large amounts of GHB day after day after day and they abruptly discontinue it, there is going to be a withdrawal syndrome that is uh, going to be pretty hard to predict exactly what's going to happen per user. Mm -hmm. So the big issue with GHB, yes, it makes you feel sort of floaty and less anxious um, and maybe a little separated from your body, but at higher doses, it's basically just going to put you to sleep. It induces an unarousable sleep, which which some people will call a coma because it is really hard to get somebody out of the state of sleep. But you do eventually wake up. So it just it really comes down to the dosage and safety, knowing what you have, knowing what the dosage is, figuring out what works for you, where you maybe feel a little relaxed, but you're not comatose. It is dangerous to mix with alcohol, and it is dangerous to use regularly, I think I would say. I don't know, Ethan, what you want to add that. Well, you know, I mean, I just think, you know, we say, obviously we say that, you know, so many overdose fatalities, especially before the advent of fentanyl, were not actually, you know, pure heroin or pharmaceutical overdoses. They were typically these drugs being mixed with alcohol or benzos. And of yeah. course, I think what one could say is that when one mixes opioids and alcohol 
in lower doses, it can be a remarkable high. And the danger is, is that if you simply go double or triple that, it may stop you breathing. And I wonder with GHB, is it similar that GHB combined with alcohol in very low doses may give especially nice high, but that the toxicity ratio, you know, the amount that will kill you, that's, you know, that, that much more than the normal dose is a very risky thing, you know? I don't know exactly, you know, the bottom line is you have to keep breathing, right? And mm -hmm. if you're if you're really drunk and you're sort of face down on a pillow, you can stop breathing. And, you know, your brain is set up to always remind you to breathe. And there's conscious reminders and sort of unconscious reminders that you keep breathing. And when you start combining depressants, you lose the conscious reminder to breathe. And then eventually you also lose the unconscious reminder. Now, opiates are very particular in that they really suppress the drive to breathe more than most other drugs. Opiates, like even in sort of safe medical dosages, you're breathing less frequently. So combining any depressants and you increase that risk of not breathing. Like Heath Ledger was, was a terrible accident. It was an accidental overdose. He wasn't trying to kill himself. The famous but he had actor. A number, yeah. He had a number of depressants in his system. He also had a lung infection and he was also face down on the bed. It's If any of those things were different, if he didn't have a pneumonia, if he was lying on his side, if he had taken one fewer depressant, then he would probably still be with us. So that it's, it's often a confluence of events, multiple drugs, and other sort of extenuating circumstances that, that lead to these problems. So let's go to uh, the next question. Okay. Hey, Julian, Ethan, this is Matt from Chattanooga, Tennessee. Big fan of you both. Thank you for everything that you do. My question is, do you view the war on drugs as a house of cards that could topple if we chip away at it consistently? For example, MDMA becoming a medicine, psilocybin mushrooms gaining popularity and even decriminalization in some places, and federal legalization of cannabis seemingly around the corner. What do you think the tipping point is, or is it going to be more of a bitter fight to the end incrementally? substance by substance, state by state. Let me know what you think. Okay. Well, Julie, maybe I'll start off on this one and then hand it over to you. Yeah. I definitely want you to start off yeah, on well, this so one. I'll jump I, mean, I mean, I'll tell you, I mean, well, the line I've used for many, many years is that when it comes to ending drug prohibition, there is no 18th Amendment of drug prohibition that were repealed as alcohol prohibition was with the 21st Amendment. And there is no Berlin Wall of drug prohibition that's going to come crumbling down in the way the Berlin Wall did, you know, back in, uh, was it 1990, 91 or whatever exactly that was. Yeah. So I think it is inevitably an incremental uh, process. I think we can see very clearly the ways in which starting with the legalization of marijuana for medical purposes back in 96, first through the initiative process and then through the state legislative process, really did transform the broader popular discussion around marijuana in ways that helped you know, result in marijuana getting legalized first in Colorado and Washington uh, in 2012 and now in, I think, 19 states around the country. And in fact, I, I've oftentimes said that if you ask how could it be that the United States States 
which was the great champion of the drug war for so long, including the war on marijuana, nonetheless became the world leader on decriminalizing and legalizing marijuana, first for medical and other purposes. It was because we did that sort of incremental process with medical marijuana and then moving into marijuana decrim and attacking on marijuana arrests and then ultimately legalization. And you can see to some extent the ways in which that has evolved. It's clearly inspired some of the reforms that are going on on psychedelics, especially the decriminalization element. It's also inspired the, the push for a broader decriminalization of all drug possession, right? Oregon did not just legalize psychedelic therapy in 2020, but they also became the first state to basically legalize the Portugal model of decriminalization where nobody goes to jail simply for drug possession. Now, how far that goes and how that relates with the fentanyl crisis going on now, you see legislators introducing all kinds of stupid drug war legislation to increase penalties, impose mandatory minimum penalties, to punish the boyfriend who gave it to a girlfriend or vice versa, where one of them, you know, died of an overdose. You know, there is, there is a spillover effect. It does carry that way, but I think it's going to be a long time process, and there are going to be periods where we roll backwards and the pendulum swings back the other way, as it, you know, it inevitably does in any area. Of social policy. But what are your thoughts? I agree with everything you said. Just like cannabis, which went sort of state by state, first a lot of medical cannabis, then more legalization, I think you're going to see the same thing with psychedelics, where it's going to kind of go state by state. And first, you're going to see medical and decrim, and it's going to take a longer time to do legalization. I also, I know when it comes to the sort of the poisoning overdose crisis, People want to do something and the knee jerk reaction is just to do what, you know, what they've always done before with mandatory minimums and sort of, you know, cranking up the rhetoric. I am less sort of optimistic, I think, just mm -hmm. about our government in general and how effective or efficient our, our government is going to be these days. And, you know, some of it depends on the midterms and what happens in the next election. You know, this is a very slow mm -hmm. process. I have been championing cannabis and MDMA and psychedelics since the mid 80s, you know, it's like 30 something years, knowing that it was going to be a slow process, knowing I had to be very patient and that if I wanted to be alive to see like the fruits of my labors, I was going to have to follow an anti-inflammatory diet and watch my blood pressure, my cholesterol. Um, it's a it's a long game. It's a slow game. And it is definitely fits and starts and one step forward two steps back. I mean, the major area we need to see some big reform now is in dealing with the overdose crisis and the fact yeah. that 100,000 people died last year, the right. majority involving fentanyl, basically an unregulated yes. drug supply involving a very dangerous form of an opioid, a very highly potent one. You right. see British Columbia just recently, I think in early June, getting permission from the federal government of Canada to basically implement a safe supply approach where and a decriminalization approach whereby people are not going to be getting busted for possessing small amounts of any drug. Now, the activists were saying the amounts that they allow are too small and it's still, still, still too restrictive and it's time limited and all this sort of stuff. But I think if there's going to be a significant movement in the U.S., the next stage will probably be in people getting more innovative in, re in responding to the overdose crisis by great frustration has been that we've not seen, you know, heroin maintenance, heroin prescribing trials going on in the United States like like we've had in Europe, you know, for right. the last 30 years to the point where this is now national policy in many European countries, but still nobody in the U.S. is doing that. But I do yeah. think that could be the next frontier. 
I would really like to see that happen. I mean, I, I've been pushing for supervised injection facilities for a very long time, and there's finally one open in New York. But I think anything that we can do to create a safer supply, you know, again, it's because of our nation's drug policy that we are having some of these problems. So mm-hmm. it, it it makes sense that that's where we have to have some of the solutions is through policy. Yeah. Well, next question. Hi, my question is, is if there's any research into tolerance and also perhaps withdrawal symptoms from cannabis use. My own personal experience, and this is in recent years, is I only need a small fraction of a gram smoking it to get a a very desirable high effect. Like I'm talking like four or five hits in a bowl and... I know other people who smoke massive, massive amounts. For me, I, I bought an ounce of medical grade, uh, you know, medical marijuana, and, and it actually lasted me an entire year. Uh, and I know other people who might go through that in, you know, perhaps a month. And what is it that's different about people? Why does my physical tolerance for the drug seem to reset every waking day? Why do other people need massive amounts and, and, you know, is there much research going on? Has the research been done? I also, when I stopped, I had no physical withdrawal symptoms. And of course, I know other people have uh, reported significant, you know, sleep disruption, appetite disruption and everything else. So, so what's the difference? Am I the special snowflake or uh, are the other people the atypical ones? Thanks. Bye. Well, Julie, as the editor of a book called The Pot Book, what's your answer to this fellow's questions? We are all special snowflakes, I guess would be my first answer. (sighs) So there has been some clinical research on cannabis tolerance and withdrawal. Most of it came out of um, a a unit at, at Columbia Hospital in New York City where they would keep people on the unit and then give them cannabis a lot and then abruptly stop and see how they did. And they were able to show for some people there were withdrawal symptoms along the lines of irritability, more difficulty initiating sleep, less of an appetite. They're pretty short-lived. They're not in any way dangerous. I mean, I I always want to remind people, if you're a heavy drinker and you drink every single day and you abruptly stop drinking, that is potentially a life-threatening situation. It's very medically dangerous there is a chance that you can have seizures. And if you start having seizures, there's about a 30% chance that you will not stop having seizures and you will actually die. So if you are heavily addicted to alcohol and you abruptly stop, that is potentially fatal. So if you compare that with some irritability and lack of appetite and difficulty falling asleep for a night or two, it's just nowhere, it's not, not even comparable. But I also want to talk about this issue of tolerance. Um, Some people talk about trying to take a tolerance break where they stop smoking for some amount of time so that they can sort of reset and use a lower dose. And there's a cannabis doctor in Maine, Dustin Sulak, who has sort of figured out that for most people, they really only need to stop for about four full days. And that is enough to reset the tolerance. So some people are more tolerant than others. A lot of people switch between strains, which they think will help to delay or defer the tolerance from happening. But I think it's safe to say that it's not uh, clinically significant. It's not medically significant. If people have a withdrawal, it is not in any way dangerous. 
And lots of people don't have tolerance, don't have withdrawal. I think to some degree, it depends on how much you smoke and how frequently you smoke, as that is the case with any tolerance or withdrawal. But it is certainly possible that some people are more sensitive to tolerance and withdrawal than other people are. And, you know, one of the things they showed in like cannabis with driving is that in people who are regular smokers, being intoxicated with cannabis didn't really have a negative impact on their driving. But if you had somebody who was not a regular smoker, who was having a large response to the cannabis and wasn't used to those effects, it would have more of an impact on their driving. I also want to say one thing about dreams and remembering dreams, because I've heard this from so many patients. If you are a regular pot smoker, you you don't always dream or you think you're not dreaming or you don't remember your dreams. And then when people abruptly stop, they will report very vivid dreams and they will report remembering their dreams. I've heard this from a number of people, so I am assuming it is true. I don't know if there's any medical literature on it, but it is sort of one of the more interesting things to me about withdrawal is that you have more intense dreams or you remember your dreams. You know, I'm curious also when it comes uh, how dose connects to this. If you're using at much higher doses on a regular basis, is it more likely that you'll have more substantial withdrawal symptoms after that? Or is this independent of the level of dose? Well, based on the way tolerance and withdrawal works, you should have more issues if you're smoking more. You know, if you're a heavy smoker and you're smoking more frequently, you're more more likely, I think, to get withdrawal symptoms than if you're not smoking a lot or you're not smoking frequently, as Mm -hmm. with other drugs. To me, though, it's a little bit of a moot point because it's not like you really see these things chemically, you know, or clinically. It's not like if I'm at the psyche ER, I have somebody coming in and they're in acute cannabis withdrawal and, you know, they're in this life-threatening state. It's just, it doesn't rise to the level of being uh, an issue clinically or medically. Let's take a break here and go to an ad. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. It took 11 years to get to the sale. The NYX anniversary sale is on now at knix.com. Celebrate the intimate apparel company that has reinvented products for real life with one of NYX's biggest sales of the year. Get 30% off all leak-proof apparel from the number one leak-proof brand in North America, including period underwear, swimwear, activewear, and more. Millions of people have made the switch to NYX leak-proof underwear, and there's never been a better time for you to try. Save 30% on super comfortable, machine-washable, and great-looking underwear that's perfect for periods and light bladder leaks. Choose from a variety of colors, styles, and sizes, from extra small to 4XL. You can even match your leak-proof underwear with an incredibly supportive and comfortable NYX wireless bra. Don't miss this chance to stock up on your NYX favorites or try something new. It only happens once a year at NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com for the NYX anniversary sale. Hurry, the sale ends on Monday, May 13th. Go to NYX.com. That's K-N-I-X.com. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. 
Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Do you know, I mean, now with all the stuff emerging with terpenes and things like this, if you hold the THC level of the marijuana, of different types of marijuana constant, but you're shifting around the terpenes and other things like that, is there any research suggesting that when you switch to a different type or brand or type of marijuana with a different set of terpenes and all the other things that uh, you know affect the flavor and taste of the marijuana, that it may actually get you high? Yeah. I mean, that's totally what I was saying about like switching strains. Like for instance, medical cannabis patients that really need their medicine every day, sometimes they will be told to switch strains around a little bit so that they can avoid tolerance. Mm -hmm. So that would speak to what you're saying. I have to ask you this question, actually. You know, for me, um, you know, as I've gotten a little older, I notice that my body doesn't tolerate alcohol quite as well. and I don't enjoy drinking as much as I used to. I might have maybe a glass, but having multiple doesn't feel right anymore. So I might use five milligrams of an edible marijuana just for a sort of social, to be in a social environment. And I might take 10 milligrams if I was going to go for a, a long massage or something like that. Yeah. And you know, if, and if, if it's a cannabis infused dinner, I had the uh, cannabis chef, Nikki Stewart on mm-hmm. uh, some months ago, and she was talking about how, you know, if you're eating it during the course of a, a course of a meal, you know, people can take 30, 40, 50, 50 milligrams, maybe even more, and it doesn't have the impact of swallowing 50 milligram gummy or something like that at one time. But then I know a couple of people who are basically consuming a thousand milligrams, a gram of THC daily. And these are very high functioning people. And one of the most brilliant human beings I've ever known is now consuming between 3,000 and 5,000 milligrams of THC daily. And I mean, there's absolutely no research out there, right, about what kind of effect this has, whether it's negative or beneficial or, I mean, do we know anything about this? No, I'm I'm really not familiar with those high doses. I'm definitely familiar with high dose CBD in in the psychiatric Mm -hmm. literature and that being potentially beneficial, even for things like bipolar disorder or schizophrenia. Like most people, when they take CBD, they may take like five or 15 or 25 milligrams, but the psychiatric literature, people are taking 600, 800 or a thousand milligrams, which is a gram. But I actually haven't heard about these ultra high THC doses, but I know that you can build up to any dose that you can, you know, be tolerant. And in terms of like the, the dinner, the infused dinner, I think if it's over several hours and you're eating, it's going to sort of slow down the absorption of how much THC is going to get into your system. So it's, again, it's like you're saying you're not taking it all at once. 
when you orally ingest THC, your liver creates a new chemical, which is 11-hydroxy-THC. And 11-hydroxy takes longer to come on, lasts longer, and is more psychedelic than THC itself. And one other thing I want to say, just in case we've got any real kind of wonky nerds listening who care about receptors, you know, the the 5-HT2A receptor, which is the receptor that is sort of tickled by most psychedelics, if you have enough THC, if you take a high enough dose of THC, you will start to tickle that 5-HT2A receptor because the the cannabis receptor, the CB1 receptor, uh, makes a receptor pair with the 5-HT2A receptor. And those two receptors together, they make what's called a dimer. The, the cannabis receptor, CB1, and the serotonin 2A receptor, when they make a dimer, that is one of the reasons why higher dose THC ends up feeling more psychedelic, is that you are actually agonizing that psychedelic receptor, the, the serotonin 2A. Okay, well, on that highly technical note, which I appreciate, <laughs> let's turn to the next question. Hi, I just listened to the episode with Brian Earp on love drugs. I really liked it. But there's something missing there. And that is of all the drugs they talked about, what they didn't talk about was cannabis, which is perhaps mm, the most popular aphrodisiac of all. So uh, that's my question. What about cannabis when it comes to love drugs? Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, Julia, I'll tell you, I mean, when I interviewed this uh, bioethicist, Brian Earp, it was fascinating, his book, Love Drugs, and it, it, it covered a whole spectrum of things, right, including not just MDMA and things like that, or alcohol for that matter, but also the ways in which people can use different types of drugs or their studies so that you can forget unpleasant memories, things like that. But at the very end, I said, what about cannabis? And, and he said, yeah, I, I, I left it out. But what's your sense about, you know, your professional sense, uh, the, the review of the literature sense about cannabis and love? Well, it's it's so highly variable. First of all, people's reactions to cannabis is very variable. I mean, you can put five people in a circle sharing a joint and maybe some people are going to get horny and some people, the last thing they're going to want to do is have sex. You know, there's tremendous variability from person to person when you're using the same cannabis. And then if you've got two or three different strains, you're going to have even more variability. So the first thing I would say is hard to predict, hard to control, a lot of variables in that there are so many different kinds of strains of cannabis and there are so many different people's responses. And I have definitely heard from a number of women who tell me that hash, in particular hash, seems to work better for them hmm. than cannabis as sort of a pro-sexual agent. And I don't know if it's because the CBD-THC ratio is a little bit more favorable in hash than cannabis. But some people swear by using cannabis before they have sex. I have a patient who she sort of will only have sex with her husband if they smoke. So some people need it. Some people like it. Some people find that it really gets in the way. Um, sometimes cannabis makes it more difficult to climax. Sometimes cannabis puts you so much in your head and you're so busy thinking, thinking that you're not really in your body. You're not totally appreciating everything that your body is doing for you. Some people get horny, but they can't climax. And then the other thing I wanted to say about cannabis was that for some people, it's a real heart opener. I have this experience a lot. Like, I, you know, I'll be in a fight with Jeremy and I'll have a puff or two, and then I will go right back up to Jeremy and just be in a completely different open-hearted, you're right, I'm wrong. I see I see now what you're saying. Like, you know, I was so closed and now I'm so open. So I think anything that sort of opens your heart 
it is bound to help you connect with somebody. But sex is super complicated. And, you know, for some people, it is about heart opening and intimacy. And then for other people, it's much more purely, purely physical and, and there is no intimacy involved, you know, and it really depends on your childhood experiences with sex or how you were taught about masturbation or if you masturbate or if you were taught that that was bad, you know, for some people having a drink or having some pot and they feel a little bit less inhibited, the brakes are off, you know, and then that an opportunity to have more pleasurable sex. But you need gas and brakes, you know? So I'm wondering, actually, if you and Brian ever spoke about a compound called 2CB, which to me is sort of the most prosexual of the psychedelics. And I was wondering if maybe that came up. I don't remember if we talked about 2CB, and I don't know if I want to share my personal experiences about 2CB and sex <laughs> well, you, uh, on this podcast. Well, can you um, share anything I, about cannabis and sex? Then I guess I would. Uh, well, I mean, I'll tell you a funny story, Julie. Years ago, before marijuana was legal anywhere, this must have been, I don't know, I'm guessing 2007, 8, 9, something like that. We were trying to figure out how to move public opinion further along. And by, by that period, I think there was beginning to be a slight majority of men who were in favor of legalizing marijuana for adults, but there was almost between five and sometimes almost 10 point gender gap in support for marijuana legalization with men much more likely to support it. Yeah. And so I came up with this idea, which was marijuana and sex, especially among older women. And I knew anecdotally many women who were in their 40s, 50s, 60s who would say that basically that marijuana played an absolutely essential role in their sexual and intimate relationship with their husband of, of many decades. Yeah. And they say, you know, but for marijuana, we probably wouldn't even be having sex right. anymore. Now, in the end, I never proceeded with that. It would have been a hard campaign for DPA, Drug yeah. Policy Alliance, as a policy organization to launch. But I will say that anecdotally, I've been struck by how many people, especially women I've encountered, who just feel that cannabis and sex go hand in hand like basically nothing else. Yeah. You asked before about 2CB, right? Yeah. And in, in the book by Sasha and Ann Shulgin, yeah. Pical, right? Anne, I think, almost did a disservice in that because she writes about when she and Sasha are first experimenting with 2CB and she takes 2CB and she falls into perhaps the most devastating depression in her life and just can't even pick herself emotionally up off the floor or whatever. Yeah. And then Sasha's in the other room and he comes in the door and she sees him and he's like glowing in her you know, because 2CB is somewhat psychedelic. And all of a sudden, the thing flips in the other direction. And she describes having the most extraordinary multi-orgasmic sex of her entire life with Sasha under the influence of 2CB. And I think what happened was that then people said, oh my God, let's just get some 2CB and we'll have this amazing multi-orgasmic sex. Right. And of course, it doesn't just work no, like that. It's, it's still uh, a psychedelic. You know, set and setting are pivotal. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I can say this much. My own personal experience was that when it came to 2CB and sex, that on the one hand, the negative side was that the sensile, the touch felt much clammier, not pleasant, not appealing. On the other hand, there was a kind of colorization of sexual sensation that was sort of erotic and pleasing and all that. Yeah. Um, but that was my own experience. And I realized it varies dramatically from one person to the next. Well, I will say I'm doing a lot of consulting for psychedelic companies. And I have spoken to a couple of companies that are really, really looking at sort of women's sexual pleasure. And, you know, 2CB is certainly one of the things that comes up as, as a possible 
sort of catalyst for this process. But it's just too complicated for it to work in everybody, you know? But mm -hmm. I, I would say in general, I have uh, sampled quite a few psychedelics in the last 40-something years. And 2CB is the only psychedelic that I've ever ingested where I would even consider feeling sexy, wanting to have sex, like feeling horny, anything. Like usually it's just not even on the table. But it's also possible that I was very much influenced by uh, Pickhall. <laughs> okay. Okay. So let's go to the last question we have from our listeners. Hi, Ethan and Julie. I really appreciate the important work that you're doing and I love the show. If you had a time machine and you could go 100 years into the future, how do you see or imagine drugs being integrated and accepted into the broader culture in Western countries? In Australia, we're a little bit behind the times and it's very frustrating. So I'm just wondering your thoughts on, on how you see the future panning out. So, Julie, you want to take a first crack at that or should I? Honestly, I really can't stand when these questions come up. I'm just, I don't know what my problem is, but I'm not very good at like imagining or envisioning how things are going to go. Um, I'd love you to start and then maybe it'll give me some ideas. <laughs> yeah. I mean, first of all, to think a hundred years a forward yeah. to 21, 22, when, you know, God knows what shape planet earth will be in, what shape humankind will be right. in. Um, I just find it impossible to answer it at that level. What I do think is that we are obviously going to continue to see a growing proliferation of psychoactive substances. You know, I mean, I mean, I remember even going back 30 years ago, Julie, people would say, oh, we're going to see the replacement of cocaine by synthetics, replacement of this by synthetics, blah, 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 blah. And I think people always expected that to happen sooner than later. But I do think over time, we're headed that direction. So one question to raise is whether the classic plant psychoactive substances, right? Cannabis, coca, you know, which becomes cocaine, opium, which becomes opiates, tobacco, which becomes nicotine, and, and some of the psychedelics, whether in fact those things will continue to play. I, I have to imagine they're going to play an ever diminishing role in the broader consumption of psychoactive substances as synthetics get developed that offer us more and more of the potential upside to these substances and less and less of the downsides. That's one, I think, fairly safe prediction. On the other hand, the fact that these substances have been around these plant products for millennia, sometimes 10,000 years, um, makes me think that they really do have some powerful staying power. Secondly, um, you know, the notion of how these substances are going to become more and more integrated. You know, it's like when you imagine just go, jumping forward a few decades, even imagining Prozac Generation 7 and MDMA Generation 4, or when you look at what some of the psychedelics research companies are more and more trying to do of developing different psychedelics that give you the upsides without some of the downsides yeah. of nausea or physical discomfort or what have you. Right. Um, whether or not we basically see alcohol get essentially displaced, I mean, alcohol obviously has so much to do with taste and flavor and culture that I'd be surprised if alcohol really disappears in any substantial way from our society. Um, it's also hard to know whether we'll continue with drug prohibitions or whether some innovations will simply happen that make, you know, the absurdity of prohibitions just so readily apparent that governments give up. 
I also wonder about other types of things, you know, virtual reality experiences and things like that, that may in fact offer, you know, safer forms of altered states of consciousness than we get from the plant substances and the synthetic drugs. The one thing I feel highly confident of is that people are going to continue experimenting with and using and consuming for a broad, almost infinite variety of reasons, all sorts of psychoactive substances. And that the notion of ever, there ever being any kind of drug-free culture, drug-free society is utterly absurd. I think even if you imagine, you know, the way that China is going now with ever greater uses of artificial intelligence and surveillance and all of this, the the, the innate need of a desire of human beings to alter their states of consciousness one way or another, and the ways in which psychoactive substances kind of facilitate that process better than and more effectively, sometimes for good, sometimes for bad, than any other forms of ways of instigating an altered state of consciousness. I think that even in the most totalitarian and hyper-controlled societies, we'll continue to see people using these substances. So what do you think? Yeah, no, I, uh, as usual, I agree with what you're saying. You know, one thing I have seen just in advising some of these psychedelic companies is that there are a number of companies who are looking to sort of tweak the molecules we already know about to make them last longer or be shorter or have some effects and not other effects. So I think we're going to continue to see this sort of, you know, alphabet soup of like new chemical entities twists on old molecules. I also think it's worth hoping that there is still going to be peyote around, that there will still be bufo alvarius around, that, you know, the the natural sources that you mentioned, I hope that they don't get depleted. People have figured out how to sort of preferentially use synthetic mescaline so that they aren't over-harvesting peyote and find other ways to make 5-MeO-DMT that don't involve, you know, molesting these toads. You know, there was a time, remember, when I, I was talking to Michael Pollan when he was doing his uh, New Yorker piece. Point, this was the article that became his big the, book like, about trip treatment. Research. Yeah. Well, I mean, when he was writing that New Yorker article, Jeremy and I are like, you're going to write a book, aren't you? Like, there's clearly enough here for a book. But I remember talking to him about this idea of like mental health clubs that, you know, the same way you can go to a gym and there's a lot of different equipment that you can get on to work your legs or your arms. Like maybe at some point you'll be able to go to like a mental health club where you will have, you know, rooms for meditation or for yoga, but there will be a 2CB room or an MDMA room and and you will be able to have some sort of psychedelic assisted therapy offered to you. Obviously, integration is important and, you know, screening and preparation, but I am assuming that these sort of processes of of having psychedelic assisted therapy available, I, I am assuming that they will become more commonplace and people will, will be sort of more educated about them and will, and will be able to avail themselves. But I see that in like 10 or 20 years. I mean, God knows what's going to happen in 100 years. You know, it's hard mm-hmm. enough to sort of predict. I mean, we know that FDA is going to be presented with some very convincing data on MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD in 2023. And it's very possible that MDMA will be FDA-approved in 2023. And then I think with psilocybin, the data will probably be gathered a year or two after that, 24, 25. So even just in the the short term, we're going to have big changes where people are going to have access to these medicines. And it's going to create its own sort of cascade of effects. When I talk about the explosive growth right now of what's happening in the psychedelic space, I always talk about pruning 
you know, if you're a gardener and you've got explosive growth, you need to cut back. You need to prune it. It's too big and too bushy and you have to make some hard decisions about what stays and what goes. But in the long run, that pruning makes for a healthier plant that will produce more fruit. So I feel like we are going to be in this in this expansive growth and pruning phase for at least the next 10, maybe even 20 years. So I don't know what happens if we do all that where we're at in 100 years. I just know you and I are not going to be here to see it. <laughs> yeah. How much do you fear uh, a crackdown of the sort that, you know, there was obviously that psychedelic renaissance that happened initially in the 50s and early 60s and then was really obliterated by the late 60s, early 70s. Yeah. How, what's your fear about that happening? Again? You know, I sort of joke about like too big to fail or that there's an awful lot of momentum right now. So I I do sort of feel like the toothpaste is out of the tube and you're not going to be able to put it back. And there are so many people now who who know that these can be used as medicines and that these can help a lot of people and that we have got a true epidemic of anxiety and depression and suicidality and substance abuse and alcoholism sort of stemming from isolation and loneliness and loss of meaning. And, you know, people are pretty miserable and COVID did not help. So we really are having a mental health crisis and we're going to need outside the box solutions for these problems. Um, it's just mm -hmm. hard to see how everything is going to shake out. Well, on that uncertain note, Julie, I want to thank you for co-hosting Psychoactive with me this second time. I want to encourage our listeners in the hope that Julie will agree to do this again, that if you have questions on your mind, uh, do it right now. In fact, just call 833-PSYCHO-0 or 833-779-2460. 833-779-2460. Leave a question you'd like Julie and or I to answer, and uh, hopefully we'll get to it the next time we do this. But Julie, listen, thank you ever so much for doing this with me. It's an incredible pleasure to catch up with you, whether we're doing it uh, with a recording like this or just in person. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Anytime, Ethan. It's my absolute pleasure. If you're enjoying Psychoactive, please tell your friends about it. Or you can write us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our listeners. If you'd like to share your own stories, comments, and ideas, then leave us a message at 1-833-779-2460. That's 833-PSYCHO-0. Or you can email us at psychoactive at protozoa.com or find me on Twitter at Ethan Nadelman. You can also find contact information in our show notes. Psychoactive is a production of iHeartRadio and Protozoa Pictures. It's hosted by me, Ethan Nadelman. It's produced by Noam Osband and Josh Thane. The executive producers are Dylan Golden, Ari Handel, Elizabeth Giesis, and Darren Aronofsky from Protozoa Pictures, Alex Williams and Matt Frederick from iHeartRadio, and me, Ethan Nadelman. Our music is by Ari Belusian, and a special thanks to Avivit Bar-Yosef, Bianca Grimshaw, and Robert Beebe. Next week, I'll be talking with Rick Doblin, who founded the Multidisciplinary Association of Psychedelic Studies, otherwise known as MAPS, back in 1986, and is now leading the way for the legalization of MDMA as a therapeutic substance. 
so the Journal Science publishes a list of what they consider to be the world's top 10 scientific breakthroughs of the year. And for 2021, they considered our phase three paper published in Nature Medicine as one of the world's top 10 scientific breakthroughs of the year. And it was just so satisfying to really speak about MDMA and the therapeutic use of MDMA as one of the world's top 10 scientific breakthroughs of the year. Subscribe to Psychoactive Now so you don't miss it. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. With the new Dexcom G7, you can achieve better diabetes results without painful finger sticks. It sends your glucose numbers to your compatible phone or watch so you can always see where you are and where you're heading. See how food and exercise affects your glucose, making it easier to spend more time in range and lower your A1C. Take more control of your diabetes with the number one recommended CGM brand. It's easy to get started today at Dexcom.com. That's Dexcom.com. Dexcom data on file 2023. Give your glucose alerts and readings from the G7. Do not match symptoms or expectations. Use a blood glucose meter to make diabetes treatment decisions. For a list of compatible devices, visit Dexcom.com slash compatibility.